The following program contains naughty bits. But before each naughty bit comes on the screen, you'll hear this warning sound. I am your host, Matthew Dawkins, and I am joined by Matthew Dawkins and Matthew Dawkins and a cavalcade of other Matthew Dawkinses. You see, I'm alone here. I've been trapped in this cell now for all too long. I dare say you will not be able to recall the last audio-only podcast recorded between Eddie, Dixie, and myself, and it's because I have been exiled, isolated, trapped in this hut in the middle of the frozen tundra. They abandoned me. They took the rations. They took the dogs. They took the horses. They even took my recording equipment, which is why I'm recording this on a potato with a couple of needles. I just hope that the audio will come through with as much quality as is traditional. So here alone... Here alone, here I am to discuss the Chronicles of Darkness and a couple of books that were released for it. A few, in fact, uh, maybe even four, uh, in particular detail because I had some involvement in their creation. Now, obviously, the Chronicles of Darkness is a very popular line. Uh, it is, uh, one could argue, second only to the World of Darkness, although some would put it... Uh, above the world of darkness, and I suppose it comes down to when you got into either of these games. My journey into Chronicles of Darkness was pretty straightforward, an evolution, if you will, without any of the hang-ups and resentments that came with a lot of people who were migrating from world to new world as it was back then. I remember being deeply invested in Vampire the Masquerade, as you might expect of me. I didn't have all the hang-ups that a lot of the people in my gaming groups felt about the end of their beloved Masquerade. For me, it felt like a natural close. I recall the resentment that some people felt that uh, they had collected all these books and now they would be worthless, or... This was the game that had helped form my teenage years. How could uh, it be taken away from me like this? And I've always possessed the view, and I hope most of you listeners are the same, that, well, books don't suddenly become useless just because future books aren't being released for that particular line. And also, and I recall this being written on the White Wolf forums of the time, the White Wolf website, and maybe even published in the Gehenna book, uh, that, well, Gehenna was always promised, an apocalyptic end event was always on the cards, and it felt suitable that one would eventually arrive. Nevertheless, with Masquerade wrapping up, I was very enthusiastic for what was to come next, and of course that was what became known as the New World of Darkness at the time. And such was the hype surrounding tabletop role-playing games at the time, that I recall having to pre-order my copies of New World of Darkness and Vampire the Requiem because they were released on the same day, uh, as I remember, and making my way down to a gaming store called Hidden Fortress, no longer there, in a city by the name of Southampton, on day of release. And there was a queue. There was actually a queue leading out of the store and down the street for people to get in and buy their copies of New Wad and Vampire the Requiem. So it's always boggled my mind. You know, some people maintain Requiem was a complete failure compared to Masquerade, and that wasn't the case. From what I remember, and I found this out much later, Requiem outsold all prior editions of Masquerade. Now, one could certainly debate the, uh, I guess, sustainability of Requiem sourcebooks uh, when compared to Masquerade sourcebooks? Did it foster as much of a fanatical following uh, of people who wanted to buy up every single product? And it's a difficult one to answer. And you can ask the same question of every New World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness line, because 
certainly there were a lot of masquerade books especially on the tail end of revised that didn't sell well you know they didn't sell in great numbers uh, the i guess popular ones to pick on are books like state of grace and archons and templars and and things like that books were that were so specific in focus that only the hyper fan of vampire was going to actually pick them up or the collectors i guess uh, so Regardless, Requiem was, in a way, a more general line, uh, and I recall picking up my copy of New World of Darkness and Vampire the Requiem, making my way to my local Debenhams, a department store, and sitting there for the entire afternoon that day, buying cups of tea, hot chocolate and the like, and just reading and reading and reading. Uh, it, what it is to be young, what it is to be young and have the capacity to keep reading and not have uh, the internet constantly reminding you of the world around you on a phone. Uh, it was a very different time, and I don't mean to wax too eloquent about the past, because of course the past always has problems just as much as the present does, but one thing I would say is that time certainly felt more conducive to reading. Now... Moving on from that little backstory, I, I, I was incredibly enthusiastic for New World of Darkness and Vampire the Requiem. I was likewise when Werewolf the Forsaken came out. Uh, I remember my uh, girlfriend of the time bought me, well, pre-ordered a copy of Forsaken for me. And it came with a set of dog tags, which I still have somewhere. A, pet, a set of forsaken dog tags. I can't. I wonder how many of those are still floating around. They were, you know, black plastic things. They weren't exactly heavy duty. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's funny. I only just really recalled that. But this went on my enthusiasm for New World of Darkness, and of course the game line expanded. New books came out eventually. Uh, New World of Darkness broke free from trying to carry over too much from what was then called Old World of Darkness or Classic World of Darkness. Uh, it's a common complaint levelled at uh, New World, C of D, that Requiem especially was too closely linked to Masquerade, you know, with some of the clan names, some of the in-game terms. And I understand the logic, the game design that went into making those connections, why the developers and writers of the time thought, well, we've got to keep the term princes, Gangrel is a very popular clan, that sort of thing. Because you didn't want, or I imagine there was a great fear of making a product so divorced from its predecessor that you would scare too many of the fans off. On the other hand, if you made that game far too close in theme to its predecessor, people would say, well, it's just a cut-down version of Masquerade. And so I, I understand both arguments. Uh, I was quite happy to just see it as a different game with different names attached, but again, I understand the criticism. As we were getting into Mage the Awakening, and then, of course, new properties like uh, new ideas like Promethean, the Created... Uh, Changeling the Lost especially, wow, what a revolution that game was, uh, both in terms of, uh, well, content and appearance. I think everyone was blown away by the appearance, the layout of Lost, uh, its vivid green thorned cover, and then, you know, going even further with Geist the Sin Eaters with its amazing inlays and th those embossed keys and so on. It was a wonderful time to be a role-playing fan. I still, I maintain that it is still now. But it was a time when you could, I guess, but may, again, I may just be speaking with the benefit of hindsight and the romanticism of nostalgia, but I remember being so hyped for every new core book that was released and for many of the source books that came with them. Um, the book I really fell in love with for New World of Darkness, uh, first it was Hunter the Vigil, uh, I ran Hunter the Vigil so much. It was the Hunter game I always wanted to play. And, you know, I'm going to speak from the heart now, and I would say that in many ways Hunter 1E, uh, I think it perfectly evolved into Hunter 2E. And for me, Hunter 2E is 
is the Apex Hunter game. I sometimes use elements of Hunters Hunted for uh, from World of Darkness. I sometimes use elements even from Hunter the Reckoning uh, for that's just been released by Renegade and Paradox. But I don't think any of them can touch Hunter the Vigil 2nd Edition or Hunter the Vigil 1st Edition. I think they expressed their, their tone so fantastically well. And uh, this was something, I think, that uh, as the New World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness games went on, tone became a firmer thing. Developers became more confident. White Wolf, later Onyx Path, became more well, bold, I think, with, uh, with thrusting out into new directions. And sometimes it succeeded and sometimes it failed. And I don't think it's too far to say that a game like Promethean the Created, which was never as popular as any of the big three or Changeling the Lost or Hunter the Vigil, uh, was it wasn't a failure, but it certainly wasn't a marquee success. And sometimes it isn't a question of content, it's not a question of quality, because I think most people will agree Promethean is a brilliantly written game, a Promethean 2nd edition especially so, but it is a game with a tone that is so entrenched in its own mythos, I guess, that it can become inaccessible or daunting, intimidating. None of that is to say it's a bad game, because it isn't. I have ran many a Promethean game. I've played more Promethean than I've ran, which is an exception for most uh, most games, uh, because I'm the perpetual storyteller, GM, whatever you want to call me. But I, I love Promethean. I think that some of the themes it deals with, the tone it deals with, is fantastic. And I compare it to Wraith in terms of it being a game that leaves you thinking and while I'm now becoming known as, I guess, a developer of games that you don't have to think that much about where they came from, uh, I still greatly love games that you do have to think about, and Promethean the Created is one such game. But then, of course, there's a bit of a lull. Uh, we know that White Wolf ultimately, as part of CCP, stops producing books for a while. Onyx Path... Um, acquires the license when it comes into formation to continue making these books and we see books like mummy the curse come out we also see books like blood and smoke which eventually became vampire the requiem second edition the god machine chronicle which became chronicles of darkness and it was after a time in the wilderness mummy the curse that drew me back in to the line that became chronicles of darkness I was utterly bewitched by the depths that Mummy could go to. It had a wonderful balance of godlike powers and internal exploration. It played with a lot of the things that I enjoy in other media, the idea of flashbacks, the idea of memory, of distorted memory. Uh, I was a big fan, and still am, of, the mo of movies like Memento, of TV shows like Lost. Media that made you question the protagonist's perspective and embedded mystery in its fabric. It's something Mage the Awakening does spectacularly, as well, and I think it's one of the reasons a lot of people love Mage, is the, this idea of mysteries that are to be explored. This is a game of solving clues, finding truths that may be forbidden or disastrous to know. Uh, in that respect, there's a bit of a Lovecraftian element. I know the term Lovecraftian gets bandied around a lot, but certainly one of the establishing authors of this truth is too much for the mortal mind to know. And Mummy the Curse, it has cosmic horror elements in it. It has uh, Lovecraftian elements in there too. And I remember it actually got me pitching again, sending uh, writing samples to Onyx Path for... Well, I, I had written samples to White Wolf in the past... Uh, all the way going back to something like, well, whenever it was Bloodlines The Chosen came out because I participated in the contest to get a Bloodline printed in that book. It wasn't successful. But I did eventually get hired on Vampire the Masquerade, the trivia game, as many of you know. 
And uh, that was an experience. Ultimately, though, uh, my first paid writing on of our for Onyx Path was Mummy the Curse's Sothis Ascends. Now, all of this will tie into the subject matter of this episode. This isn't just Matthew Dawkins' journey through Chronicles of Darkness, though hopefully it's interesting and hopefully it's uh, inspiring some of your memories about how you got into this line, because I can wax eloquent to myself, <laughs> as I am, uh, about these games for a very long time, and I probably will. In fact, I have to. Uh, this episode will last around an hour. So, brace yourself. But I was so enthralled with Mummy, and when I got to write my first assignment, which was 20,000 words, which is a big assignment for a first-time writer, I'd done some additional writing for Book of the Worm before this, but that was in the role of consulting developer who had really finagled, pushed, and, uh, well... I'll explain, actually, because I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea. Uh, if someone someone may be listening to this who thinks, hang on, wasn't your first credit book of the worm for Werewolf 20th edition? Technically, it was. And that's because I backed Werewolf the Apocalypse 20th anniversary edition at the consulting developer level. Now, I sold books to be able to afford this. I remember getting through most of my Planescape, all of my Deadlands collection, so that I could afford that consulting developer pledge. And there was a very particular reason for it. I had pitched several times, but knowing, as I have also applied for jobs many, many times across the course of my life, knowing that most employers aren't going to provide you with a breakdown of why you didn't get this job, I thought the best way to get feedback was by putting the money down, getting in as a consulting developer, and receiving, effectively, one-on-one -on -one tutelage. And so I got into Book of the Worm as a consulting developer, and I watched the writers write. I didn't interfere, I didn't try and come in as a fan with all of my fantastic suggestions, I just watched them work. And then I watched the developer, Stu Wilson, redline. And then I started asking questions, just some. I wanted to know why this choice was made, or what what's the thinking behind this. Not, again, in an inquisitorial fashion, I was just curious. And we got to final drafts, and I happened to notice there was an, an omission in the book. Something that I felt uh, would have been a fantastic edition that did not... Uh, that, that just wasn't thought of and often this happens uh, when you are developing a book you, you sometimes miss something that could be really interesting and that edition for Book of the Worm was the Pentex Board of Directors uh, as they had been present in Book of the Worm 1st edition and 2nd edition and so I said would you mind if I had just a stab at writing some of these up and Stu uh, you know, not getting paid for it. This was pure voluntary work, effectively. He said, yeah, go for it. Come up with with some. And so I did. And I sent them to him, and he said, I'll redline these for you. And that's exactly what I was looking for. Stu spent the time redlining that work, sent it back to me, said what worked, what didn't. And the amount I learned just from having someone go through my work like that. And I know that's a rare liberty a uh, rare treat that I received, but that taught me something incredibly valuable. One, not to be too precious about my own work, because it will get changed by the developer. But two, I just picked up on all the repeated faults that I kept making as I was submitting drafts. And so then I submitted a sample for Mummy, and almost straight away I got picked up to work on Sothis Ascends. And... Again, 20,000 words I had to write about an historical era in Mummy, and I spent time in the library, I spent time researching, I wanted it to be accurate but also interesting, and contrary to my redline experience on Book of the Worm, uh, I got very minimal redlines, which wasn't a great deal of help, but... What I got out of that was a foot in the door, at which point I could start approaching other developers and saying, I've got this credit, I've got that credit, now would you consider hiring me for this? And there we went. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because 
Sophos Ascends has a really interesting link to Dark Eras and Dark Eras 2 and the Dark Eras Companion. Namely, Sophos Ascends is a Mummy the Curse book about historical periods in the Mummy timeline. And as Mummy is a game that spans multiple eras due to the fact that you spend a lot of time asleep in your descent and then you awaken later, in first edition it's linear and second edition not so much, Dark Eras was dealing with the same thing. So I thought, well, great, this is something I can bring my particular talents to, something I've got experience in, I can start actually applying to the rest of the Chronicles of Darkness. I ended up uh, getting in on Dark Era's Companion as a writer and ended up co-developing the chapter I had initially co-written, uh, which is a story for another day. Uh, it w certainly wasn't by design, but that was how things worked out with the people we were working with at the time. And I remember that Dark Era's, when it was being made, the thinking behind it was, well, people love historical books. Dark Ages, Vampire, Vampire, the Dark Ages was pretty damn successful. Requiem for Rome was critically very popular. Uh, there were, of course, historical era eras for other books, other game lines. Um, sticking to Vampire, of course, New Wave Requiem for such a small book was really popular as well. Also stunningly well designed and written. And so the idea of doing a Dark Eras book that covered historical eras of interest to every single World of Darkness game line of the time, or I say Chronicles of Darkness game line of the time, excuse me, was, I think, appealing to us as creators. We thought this is going to capture people's imaginations. And what's more, we had the perhaps misguided opinion that this would also sell really well. <laughs> now, that's, again, not to say that Dark Eras did badly. It didn't at all. I mean, you can see the... I know this is a very loose way of determining it because it doesn't take into account Kickstarter backers, which is always a very useful metric to look at to see how well a book has done. But we also can look at DriveThruRPG and see the kind of medal it has, which implies a certain level of saleability. Dark Eras was by no means a failure on that count. Where it was interesting was the fact that there were a lot of people, a lot of established fans, who were saying, I'm not going to pick this up because there's only one chapter focusing on a game I play. I think this is somewhere where we may have misjudged, and it's all very well with retrospect, hindsight, etc., looking back and saying, oh, well, maybe that wasn't a great idea. It did seem to sell well, but from a... There's a difference between a book selling well and a book being used. In an ideal world, we want our books to not only sell, we also want them being brought out at the tabletop or played with online. We want to hear about people playing our games. Now, with some games, we hear about that a lot. Uh, there's obviously a lot of people playing with the World of Darkness material we create. Uh, there's actual plays to evidence that. There's a lot of people playing with the core books from Chronicles of Darkness. There's a, lo a lot of people playing Pugmire and Trinity and Scion and... Probably they came from beyond the grave more than they came from beneath the sea, if we're honest. But when it came to a book like Dark Eras, which was very sizable, had a lot of work put into it, and it wasn't an easy book to develop, I can tell you that, and I'll get on to the why in a moment. What we heard, again, was customers saying, well, it's a nice book, but of its 12 or so chapters, I'm only ever going to use one because my group plays Mage exclusively. My group isn't interested in what Sin Eaters are up to, what Created are up to, and so on and so forth. That's really interesting to me as a creator, as a designer. I hope it's interesting to you as a listener as well because it shows a fundamental limit to some people's imagination. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I don't mean to say these people are dullards and can't stretch their minds. What I mean is if they see a contents page and they see it says vampire 
and then let's say Rome, and then it says werewolf, Vikings, and then it says changeling, Renaissance, as examples. They don't think, well, I can use some of that material from the Renaissance for a vampire game, or I can use some of that Viking material from for a Promethean game. They think, ah, well, this content is just for a game that I'm not playing. Which is a really interesting barrier that we as designers have to overcome. We have to be able to sell things in a way that appears, in a sense, generic, that you can access it no matter what game you're playing, but also... It is specific because there is material in there that is going to cater to your vampire, mage, uh, hunter games, whatever the case may be. And so when uh, this book was being developed, Dark Eras and Dark Eras Companion, it was being developed with a great idea that there would be one developer overseeing it and that uh, at the time all the Chronicles of Darkness games had, intentionally or not, one line developer per line uh, and this sometimes altered but largely there was one person you went to for each game line uh, they were the committed i guess creative head uh, they were in a sense just developers but they were the people known for that game and developers i can tell you have a way of working at different speeds their different developers have different rates or and levels of communication with which they're comfortable and collaboration with which they're comfortable. And under those developers, you also had writers. And those writers all had different speeds and different quality of work and so on and so forth. Now, when that all has to end up with one person to coordinate, it sounds like it should work fine, and in theory it would, but the reality is you are managing at that point something like 12 different teams and trying to get them all to the finish line at around the same time. I can tell you that the development of Dark Eras was chaotic. Dark Eras Companion was pretty chaotic as well. There was no one person at fault in this. It was just the way things broke down. We decided Dark Eras 2 was going to be different. And in this case, there were three overseers uh, in the form of myself... Megan Fitzgerald, and Monica Valentinelli. Monica had the final say on everything that ended up in the book, but we three had several chapters each that we had to develop uh, to a finished standard. And this method, it still had challenges, uh, it still had communication issues because... In an ideal world, every writer is talking and posting publicly their great ideas, and other writers aren't feeling bad about coming in and saying, yeah, this doesn't work, or this would work better if. Some people work like that, some people don't. But this book did work a lot better in terms of its creation. And what's more, what Dark Eras 2 did, that Dark Eras 1 did not, was start funneling in the idea of crossover. Now, Chronicles of Darkness has never had the major issue of crossover compatibility that World of Darkness always did at a meta-plot level. World of Darkness had this issue where, uh, and you will have no doubt heard it many times before, that werewolves would never work with vampires because vampires are of the worm. Mages will never work with werewolves because they'll try stealing their cans and sapping all the life out of it and the werewolves will maul the mages to death. Hunters will certainly never work with vampires, they'll just kill them, and so on. So it goes. It was the end result of a game that was never initially designed to be crossover compatible, and when those games were being developed in isolation from each other, pretty much everyone ended up an enemy of someone else, excluding some, uh, I guess, extreme fringe examples, like in early editions, Malkavians and then... Uh, Kia Seed and then all kinds were, you know, friends with the Changelings or Gangrel were friends with the Werewolves, but those sorts of things dropped off. Now, Chronicles of Darkness didn't have that intrinsic issue. Uh, instead, there was, I guess, a system compatibility issue. If we are using a Werewolf gift on a vampire and it's referring to traits that vampire doesn't possess, how do we handle it? And that's where the Clash of Wills came in, a very simple mechanic that exists in Chronicles of Darkness and fuels crossover compatibility incredibly easily. 
and Dark Eras 2 was really our first major foray. There was some of it in Dark Eras Companion as well, as I remember, but our first major foray into having multiple chapters, each dedicated to two or three game lines. This was a bold undertaking, I have to say. Really quite adventurous, because this was the first time we were hiring writers to not only work together, but also slot different game lines together in a meta plot, uh, not just agnostic, but compatible at the same time fashion. So, for instance, in the Arthur's Britannia chapter, we have changelings, we have hunters, and we have vampires from memory. In fact, that's definitely true, because it was my excuse to get the Bron from one of the uh, first edition Requiem Bloodlines books uh, back into second edition CFD. And in the Great War chapter, we had werewolves, we had sin eaters, and we had created from Promethean. And doing this across all of the chapters not only required a certain level of knowledge regarding the game at a system level, it also required a knowledge of how the game's protagonists might function together at a setting level. Not only that, but also how they might function together at a setting level in this particular historic period. That's asking a fair amount from your writers, uh, and all of the writers rose to the occasion. I think Dark Eras 2, in particular, is a fantastic book. It's a brilliant piece of work, because not only has research gone into it in every single chapter in a really meaningful way, there's also a ton of playable options availed to you there. It gets through the obstacle of Dark Eras 1, where you had people saying, well, this is a chapter, this is a book of 12 fantastic chapters, but I'm only going to use one of them, because now, not only did you have chapters that spanned multiple game lines, but you also incorporated loads of playable tools in there. Uh, whether it was new splats, our basic name for classes, uh, species, peoples, call them what you will, from games, but also powers uh, that were specific to different lines, um, loads of story hooks and mysteries, things that you could accomplish and investigate. And when I look at the contents of this book, even now, going from... So we've got Hunger in the Black Land, we've got the Seven Wonders chapter, Arthur's Britannia 1001, Nightmares in the Arabian Nights, Empire of Gold and Dust... Uh, we have The Light of the Sun, Rise of the Last Imperials, The Scandinavian Witch Trials, which, as I recall, was added due to a backer request uh, because we did some polling as part of this uh, this Kickstarter. The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, where we have some pirates, uh, mage pirates. The Reign of Terror, which I wrote on, in fact, as I remember. Uh, so we've got some French Revolution stuff going on, Mysterious Frontiers, and then we've got The Great War. This is a book that spans over 2,000 years of historical epochs, and not only does it do it in a way that makes them interesting and playable, it also does it in a way that provides you with tools. When I approach development of a game, as I have said ad infinitum, I want the book to be as appealing to players as I want it to be appealing to storytellers. One of the huge obstacles we have as game developers is after the core book, sales naturally go down, often because there's only one person running the game in a group of friends, and it's only that person who's going to buy the subsequent books. That's less the case when there's playable options, and that's less the case when there's material in there that people just want to read because it's fascinating. Dark Eras 2, and this isn't to diminish the fine efforts on Dark Eras 1 or Dark Eras Companion, which, you know, I worked on those books, is, I think, a splendid uh, book that is eminently readable, plumbable, there we go, for hooks that you can use for any game, not just because of the tools that we're presenting at face value, but because of the mortal stories that are going on at the same time as well. 
This was an objective that Monica, Megan, and myself had from the very start. We wanted a book where these historic events aren't going to put your characters on the sidelines at all. You're not just going to be observers. And again, that's something I think some people might approach it with in error. Uh, rather, they will look at these game lines, I hope. They will look at these chapters and they will see these are interesting characters to incorporate into our stories as storytellers, or if I'm a player, I want these characters as contacts on my sheet, as merits, effectively, that I can buy. I want to have been involved in this historical event, and I don't think it's too grandiose and it's not too arrogant to do that. The reason we placed all of these chapters at different historical periods in really interesting historical periods was so that characters could get deeply involved in every single one of them. Now I remember when co-developing this book finding the Great War chapter a particular challenge not because the material was bad by no means the authors again did a great job. I remember prescribing all of them Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast because I think he had recently finished his Great War saga at that point. And I thought, what better inspiration? Because it really is a fantastic podcast if you haven't listened. Uh, he does an immense amount of research and uh, how it saves us the job. But I remember the subject matter as many historical periods are was of course particularly bloody uh gr grotesque and on a scale that is almost unmatched uh, across all of human history now well, at least as as far as i know i'm i'm no i'm an amateur historian of, of a very specific period and while i have of course read up on the great war visited the battlefields and the cemeteries and been um well, if it's the, not the wrong term to use, blown away by all of that, I am no expert on the Great War. Uh, I, I, I know it well enough, I suppose. And when dealing with such heavy material, you have to wonder, as a developer, as a writer, am I trivialising this? Am I making this material too accessible, too changeable by my supernatural protagonists? Or, conversely, am I making it too unchangeable? Am I making my protagonists feel rudderless, lacking agency in this particular era? Because if I am, what's the point in presenting it as a playable option? And so, when I was developing the Great War chapter, I was very conscious of the fact that it had to somehow meet in the middle or overcome both of those challenges. And, you know, I take a lot of inspiration from a book like Wraith the Great War from way back when, which handled the Great War, again, spectacularly well, much as Wraith handled other historical eras incredibly well, and I would love to one day do another Wraith uh, history book, uh, but I don't know if that's on the cards. I can honestly say that once I was done with the Great War chapter as a developer, it is one of my proudest accomplishments as a game designer, as a developer of authors. And how proud I was of the authors of that chapter along with it is it's, it's immeasurable. Because somehow they handled this incredible historical period where so many lives were lost in such gory and brutal merciless fashion and made it gameable without making it trivial now i can't necessarily go into exactly how they managed all of this uh, there's so some stuff you just have to pick up on by reading it and i invite you to do that i would love it if people who have purchased a copy of dark eras 2 and haven't necessarily given the great war chapter a go give it another look or if you haven't bought Dark Eras 2, please do pick up a copy. And I can't just go about advertising a single chapter, of course, because that falls back into the Dark Eras 1 problem. But hopefully, the fact that these various uh, chapters 
not only cater to multiple game lines but also present these historical periods in such enthralling and interactive ways is enticing to you the listener and i would love it if you could feedback your thoughts on not only how the great war is i mean by all means uh, bring me down at the knees and say no in fact you've uh, ruined the great war for everyone <laughs> uh or you know uh, do do as you will, but I would love it if you checked it out. Uh, Dark Eras 2 is one of these books that, considering the amount of effort we poured into it, the time that went into its creation, it's a book I can understand why some people struggle with it, because it comes back to that issue of, and it's less the case, as I say, but it's still the issue of... This is a book that contains X percent of content that I may not use. Maybe it's not because of a supernatural thing. Maybe it's not, I don't run Promethean, so I'm not going to use a Promethean era. Maybe it's simply, I'm not going to set my game in Imperial China. Maybe it's a, a case of, I'm not going to set my game as far back as Arthur's Britannia. You know, it's mythological, after all. But... I would hope that the majority of people who listen to this podcast are so into their gaming, are established enough with their role-playing, or enthusiastic enough as new role-players, that even if I was not to set a game in the Seven Wonders period, which is uh, you know a pretty broad period, there would still be lots of story hooks I could use from that chapter. I could supplant them, well, transplant them, place them elsewhere, and they would still be fantastic. So, that's Dark Eras 2. We spent a lot of time on it. I'm very proud of it, and I would love it if more people checked it out. Uh, of course, with it being Chronicles of Darkness month in July, uh, when this goes out, uh, it's going to be on sale at some juncture, and I don't think there's going to be a better time where you could actually pick up a copy, because we are knocking the cost of pretty much every core book during the course of this year down to 10% at some point because it's our 10th anniversary. Dark Eras 2 is a big book with a lot of content that you can use in your games. And I will do a special call out at this point. Again, Mummy the Curse is a game that takes place across multiple eras, especially in second edition. If you, the fan of Mummy, and hopefully there's more than one of you, wants to receive inspiration for your mummy games well the dark eras books are effectively big mummy source books we have that in mind when we started working on mummy the curse second edition and i came up with this timeless aspect that allows you to pl place the game at any point in history and any land then or empire or what have you well i thought immediately well those are books we don't need to make because we've already got Dark Eras. And the Dark Eras books do so well what we want Mummy the Curse 2nd Edition to do. So if you're running Mummy and you're thinking, well, I don't want to have to do all the research of looking up what uh, this particular nation was doing at this time, well, fear not. You've got three books, Dark Eras, Dark Eras Companion, which isn't a companion in the sense that it's just got some additional tools and storyteller advice. It's whole new chapters with crossover stuff as well as i remember it uh it also the mummy cleopatra era in dark era's companion has uh, a hell of a lot of dna that leads to mummy the curse second edition this is where i started putting my ideas down into uh, print as it were about incorporating immortals sorcerers and such uh, and of course dark eras too but that, I mentioned, was a sort of natural progression for me uh, from working on Sothis Ascends, where I was working on a historical era for Mummy, to working on Dark Eras and Dark Eras 2, Dark Eras Companion, and then switching tack a little, going on to the Contagion Chronicle. So I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. What kind of callous bastard are you matthew dawkins that you would develop a book about a global <laughs> hell trans-dimensional pandemic at a time of a global pandemic you sod i i have heard it all before i'm not daunted but you know <laughs> S 
someone had to do it. No, uh, I started working on the Contagion Chronicle long before uh, COVID was a thing, or at least long before we knew COVID was a thing. It just so happened that it released at the same time as COVID was a thing, and by that point the wheels were already in motion. I don't think we have uh, gravely offended a massive population of people. Um, but if you were, I apologise. Uh, these are things we could not anticipate, but I can understand why you may have been hurt by a book called The Contagion Chronicle while we were all in lockdown. Nevertheless, when The Contagion Chronicle was first proposed, I remember discussing with Rose Bailey this idea of a crossover chronicle, one big book that supported every single game line, and... My first pitch for it was this was god awful. It was called Crossing Over. I know, ugh. Uh, and I think there was going to be some kind of planar aspect to it. Now, the only thing that was retained from that pitch was the planar aspect of factions. So, if you're a fan of Planescape, the Dungeons and Dragons campaign setting from Second Edition that has occasionally popped up here and there since. Uh, you will know that factions are a part of it. Factions were, interestingly, D&D's response to Vampire the Masquerade's clans. Uh, Planescape was designed as a, not a riposte, but a way of attracting these uh, intellectual, pseudo-intellectual roleplayers who weren't just interested in playing people with big clubs. They were instead interested in playing ideas and philosophies, personalities, and so on. So the factions were introduced to Planescape and subsequently ended up in a fashion in the Contagion Chronicle. Because what I needed was another axis uh, for the Chronicles of Darkness to function on. So let's dial back a little. The idea behind the Contagion Chronicle is it's a global event where you're, regardless of where you are, wherever your setting happens to be, and there are lots of settings presented in the Contagion Chronicle, though they're pretty flexible, you can see these Contagion events breaking out. Now, these aren't mundane plagues, at least not for the most part. Most of the time, this is something going wrong with the god machine. The god machine is infected, or if you are in a game where the god machine is utterly absent... It could be something else pouring through from the Abyss, or it could be something pouring in through Duat, or the Underworld may have fallen corrupted here or there, or these may be monsters that were locked away, primordials that were locked away for a long time and have now started uh, emerging into our world. It could be the Idagam's Revenge. It doesn't really matter. It's supposed to be open because storytellers can and should fill in those blanks. Uh, we don't expect every single game outside of Demon to deal with the idea of the God Machine as an example. But the idea was to present a lot of different existential crises, and along with some internal ones as well, in the form of some kind of plague. And in some cases these plagues were purely physical. They were deforming, mutating, uh, you know, making Mr. Hyde's of Dr. Jekylls. In others they were psychic plagues. Everyone was suddenly me mentally controlled. It was getting very Children of the Corn or Stepford Wives-esque. In others there were plagues of, of the spirit, uh, where people couldn't pass on. There was a lot of there were a lot of ideas that were being thrown around. Some plagues were only targeted against certain supernatural creatures. So it would make the crisis particularly well pertinent to one type of character. Now, this was, as I say, spread around multiple settings in the Chronicles of Darkness that were flexible design by design. We have, uh, let's see, um, I need to test my memory now. Um, but from memory, we had Edinburgh, uh, Odense, Denmark, San Francisco, Kyoto, New Zealand, Democratic Republic of Congo, Milton Keynes, and more. And my main objective there was to get every single continent covered. Uh, even Antarctica appears. The content, the actual content of the plague and what happens to be there isn't really regionally locked. We just so happen to profile it there so that we had a backdrop for it because people find backdrops more interesting than just saying, hey, this is in a generic city. 
Yeah, for the most part, some people love generic cities. I shouldn't think to speak for all of you. Having a global crisis uh, is useful in one respect, but it's not in another. And I found this as a developer. I found this, of course, as a fan as well, listening to customers. I like to listen to what people say and listening to Kickstarter backers who were saying, well, this is half a book that I'm not going to use. It gets back to that problem again. And this is the problem whenever you make a book that has multiple protagonists and multiple settings. When you start introducing travelogues, and Rich and the others at Onyx Path know that I have a bit of a bugbear for travelogues at this point, a lot of people will think, to use an example, I'm never going to set my game in Asia, so that's useless to me. Again, I like to say that doesn't mean there isn't good material in there that you can use. But I think it's that initial hurdle that puts people off. And so we have all these uh, geographical locations that you can explore and interesting phenomena that's taking place there. Uh, the various myriad contagions that exist and can threaten your characters, their, their contacts, their mortal allies and such. But... It wasn't anything playable. And so this is where the idea of factions came in. Not just factions, but factions with powers. These were supposed to be uh, different ways to justify werewolves, vampires, mages, created, hunters, the lost, uh, sin eaters, demons, mummies, primordials, uh, tell me if I've missed anything, working together and actually working toward a unified goal, which may have been propagating the contagion, may have been suppressing the contagion, may have been annihilating the contagion, may have been passing on the contagion to someone else we think is more deserving of it. There were lots of different reasons behind these various sworn and false factions, and I, I was particularly keen on the, the work that went into the factions I should say as well. I think there was great work done there. Uh, especially I'm going to call out Megan Fitzgerald, uh, who did a wonderful job with the factions in this book. Uh, there were other authors as well, and they all did fantastic work as well, but Megan did great writing on the Contagion Chronicle. And the idea was, as I say, to provide playable options that presented a new axis. See, I knew I'd get back to my original point because you see characters in Chronicles of Darkness as essentially existing on two axes for most games. Uh, Vampire is a pretty overt one. Clan and Covenant. Uh, in Mummy, for instance, you've got Decree and Guild. And so on. In the Contagion Chronicle, we were essentially adding a Z axis, axis to the X and Y. Now you had clan, covenant, and faction. And what this meant was you could have a vampire, a mechet in the Circle of the Crone, who also happened to be of the Ship of Theseus faction. Or you could have a, oh, I don't know, jackal-headed Sumenent of the Jeremiad. And there were all these different factions that we presented, I believe from memory, as something like eight but the point was, not only were these groups that you could join, that much like in Planescape with its factions, exist at a philosophical level, but we also wanted to provide some punch there, because we know that a lot of role players they, they will see a group and they'll think, well, that's interesting story material, but they won't necessarily know how to play it unless they have powers linked to it. And so then you had how each of these factions either used or repelled Contagion and how being a member of this faction affected each supernatural player type or character type, I should say. So, different powers manifested in different ways for different types of character, which meant that you could have multiple characters in the same faction who use the same power, but it comes out completely differently for each of them. This was, again, a massive undertaking, because not only did we have to provide all of these powers, uh, we also had to provide variations for all of these powers. But I think it came off really well. 
Uh, and I think the people who've been playing around with the Contagion Chronicle agree. I would like to think so. I would again say Contagion is one of those books that's much like some of the Dark Eras... I don't see enough of or hear enough of. And again, I think it may be a barrier to entry to some people who are thinking, I just want to play a game of Vampire the Requiem. I don't want to deal with all this contagion shit. I understand that. Um, but I still maintain, and maybe this is my idyllic creator's vision, that whatever game you're playing, whether it's dark, whether, whether, yeah, whether you're playing Vampire or Werewolf or whatever, that material in the Dark Eras books, material in the Contagion Chronicle books, because there's more than one, of course. There's the Player's Guide 2, which provides an awful lot of material on not the Contagion per se, but how a Sin Eater's powers and a worldview might affect a mage, as an example. Uh, and vice versa. Now... I think that, yeah, the barrier to entry, as I mentioned, the idea that, well, this contains a lot of material I'm not going to use, is a false one. Because if you scratch the surface, and that's all it takes quite often, I think, all it takes is a little bit of investment. It takes 15 minutes of reading. If you have 15 minutes to read a book, I certainly recommend The Contagion Chronicle or any of the ones I've mentioned in this show. Because if you do get beneath the surface, you can start seeing that there's a ton, a load of material that you can use in your games, whether it's interesting characters, interesting powers, interesting events, interesting story hooks, interesting locations, interesting existential events and crises. There's a lot. I can't think of many storytellers who can do without all of that entirely, and in fact, what I often hear is there are storytellers who, think, who say, I'd really like to run this game, but I don't know what to do with it. it. If I had hair, I would tear it out and say, that's what these books are for. <laughs> if you don't know what to do with this game that you love reading, pick up this book because it will tell you exactly what to do with this game that you're reading. It is. Uh, I mentioned bugbears earlier, and... Working on the Contagion Chronicle as a developer was a an ordeal, I think it's fair to say. Because the team, really great. You know, I cannot fault the writers, the artists, the editor, anything like that. And I wouldn't. Uh, certainly not on a podcast. <laughs> but the material, wow. I don't think I've ever had to develop anything with so much minutiae as the Contagion Chronicle. And what is great about the Contagion Chronicle is none of those struggles are apparent on the page, in my view, and in the view of the other people who have read it and fed back to me. They say this is a really clean book. They say this this is a really accessible book. We want to see this material getting used more widely, and it's lovely to hear that kind of thing as a creator. I can tell you. I don't need the validation all the time, but it's lovely to receive it. But when working underneath the hood, as it were, to get the Contagion Chronicle functional, that is where the challenge arises. Because I remind you, this is a book of over a dozen game lines. And not only did I have to have, as the sole developer, knowledge of each of these game lines, I also had to have knowledge of each of these game lines' mechanics, meta plots. And for those who say Chronicles of Darkness doesn't have a meta plot, they've clearly never read Mage. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's it's interesting because you have the double issue of people who will not look at the book because they think it contains a lot of material they won't use but then you have the issue of people who will look at the book and then come away saying well it's a really nice concept but it doesn't handle mage as an example in the way that I expect it to because everyone wants it to be a source book for their game line. And when you're producing a book that contains every game line, it becomes very difficult to make a game for all seasons, something that is going to scratch every single reader's itch. You are running a risk of scratching no one's itch. And in that case, you have to gauge the book's success. Did it do what we planned for it to do? Are we shooting too high? Are we, if by hoping, 
fans of every single Chronicles of Darkness line are going to leap on this and say, yes, this is the best thing since uh, Sliced Bread or Damnation City, then you may be shooting too high because while that's a fantastic aspiration, we also know that people have different tastes, different preferences, and it's probably a bit uh, pie in the sky as it were, to to think that everyone is going to love something that contains every single game line. Therefore, what are we aiming for? And when I look at the Contagion Chronicle, and I think back to what I was aiming for in the first place as developer, I think of a book that contains player tools, contains storyteller tools, contains interesting settings, contains interesting events, and story hooks, and crises, and antagonists that approach it that provides a new axis of play and provides a philosophical approach to the chronicles of darkness as a setting uh, rather than a mechanical one a purely mechanical one i think again much as i was talking about the great war and speaking of it with such pride uh, i look at this book and think wow i'm amazed it turned out so well again no bad, no ill will toward the writers, no ill will toward me. Uh, I don't think I'm a bad developer by any means. I just think the fact that it works so well and that the people who love it do love it means that we did something right. And it's a lesson you have to learn as a designer that your game isn't going to necessarily appeal to everyone under the sun just because they play Chronicles of Darkness doesn't mean they want to cross over their games. Some people are perfectly happy just playing Hunter the Vigil. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. So, yeah. Uh, that is my thoughts on Contagion Chronicle, the way it was built, what it presents. And much like the Dark Era's books, I implore you, listeners, if you haven't picked up a copy, it's going to be on sale, so there's really no excuse not to. Not only does it contain brilliant text, it also contains wonderful, sublime art that really, I think Contagion Chronicle does something I was really hoping for in that it provides some real gross-out body horror art. So if you're into your horrific art, go for that. Uh, but it also straddles that line, it presents all the different Chronicles of Darkness game lines in a way that hopefully makes them all feel unique, accessible and interesting, and really as a developer I can't ask for more than that. If you do pick up a copy, please let me know and uh, post in the Onyx Path Discord, leave reviews on DriveThruRPGs, or leave ratings on DriveThruRPG. Something I've uh, mentioned uh on many shows is you can order books like the Contagion Chronicle through your local game store, so please do. You can order it from Indie Press Revolution and Studio 2 as well. Uh, same with the Dark Eras books. But beyond that, if you are a frequent drive through RPG customer, I ask you a favour now, if you're sat at your computer or on your phone, go in to my account, not mine, your account on DriveThruRPG, and it will tell you how many books you have left to rate and review. You'll probably see a number somewhere in the hundreds, maybe even more. You don't have to review every single one of them, but it takes you a second to leave a rating, a star rating. So if you've read a book or read most of a book and you have an impression of it, leave a star rating. It genuinely helps make people pick up books when they see something with a good star rating. Obviously, if you don't have a good rating to give, then yeah. <laughs> I'd suggest keeping your opinion to yourself. Anyway, anyway. Well, this has been a very long conversation. Thank you very much, Eddie and Dixie, for uh, your participation in this one. It's uh, As ever, as ever, your contributions are valuable, and I, I particularly appreciate them. You know, being out here isolated in the tundra like this, it does give one pause for thought and, well, you don't have time to do much else. Really, I'm just surrounded by copies of Dark Eras, Dark Eras 2, Dark Eras Companion, and the Contagion Chronicle, and at some point I'm going to have to start a fire. But you know, I am so committed to this game line that I would rather burn myself alive than burn a copy of these books. And so that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so we will end, we will end with self-immolation. Uh, which, uh, you know, I guess career-wise I did a long time ago. <laughs>
I am very grateful if you've managed to stick through this and just listen to me ramble on. One man show that I am. Uh, we will come back, of course, with more content, with uh, more than just one person speaking. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, please do tell us uh, again on the Onyx Path Discord. Leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. It helps people find the show. And if there are particular books you want us to examine in depth, talk about like this, then, yeah, ask us. Uh, we love having new content to discuss. So you can find me on MatthewDawkins.com. You can find me on the Onyx Path Discord. I am Matthew Dawkins on there, unsurprisingly. You can find me on Twitter at DawkinsMP. You can find Dixie on Twitter at uh, DixieCyanide and DixieCochran.com. And you can find Eddie on Twitter as Pugsteady. And uh, I'm forgetting the name of his website. It's probably something like Pugsteady or Realms of Pugmire or Pugmire Eddie Webb or... Um, something like that, .com. I'm sure you can find him, though. He's not hard to find. He, he stands out like a sore thumb, in my opinion. Anyway, you can find all of us on the onyxpath.com. You can find all of us on the Onyx Path Discord and, of course, on the Onyx Pathcast. And with that said, many worlds, one pathcast.